Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today we are going to be delving into the top news topics that are impacting the world of real estate and real estate investors. And to do that, I have my friends, Henry Washington, James Daynard, and Kathy Fecky joining me. And we are going to be talking about all sorts of different things. First and foremost, we'll definitely be talking about the major lawsuit that just dropped the verdict against NAR. We'll be talking about commercial real estate and some news about what might be happening there in 2024. We got to talk about WeWork because that's all over the news. And we'll talk about housing sentiment and how Americans are feeling about the economy. Are you all ready to jump into this? Let's do it. I'm curious. Have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. 
It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. All right, let's start with our first headline, which is, quote, Zillow plunges after verdict on real estate brokerage commission. So we talked a lot about what happened with the verdict in an episode a couple of weeks ago with James Rodriguez. If you haven't checked that out, you can go listen to that. But what this article talks about is how this verdict is not just impacting the NAR and Keller Williams, the defendants in the case, but also has some ripple effects throughout the entire industry. After the decision, shares of Zillow dropped almost 7%. It's a very big decline. We're also seeing other major brokerages falling like 6.2%. Redfin dropped 5.7%. And none of these, these companies were even named in the lawsuit. So I wanted to ask you guys what you think of all this. James, as a broker, do you see this verdict really impacting brokerages across the country? You know, I think it's the start of the shift. And I'm a broker. And I do think that sometimes brokers are overpaid on transactions, uh, you know, especially with, with the sales that are going on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I'm a firm believer that brokers, if you want to get paid that 3% fee that, you know, they were saying was a, a normalized fee, then you better put in some extra effort. Um, you know, like the amount of extra services that we offer inside of our commissions or, you know, we, we do so many more things just to earn that commission. And if someone's just putting a sign in the yard, then maybe that's all you need. And that should be a little bit cheaper. 
you know, and I can see why the stocks are going down because this is going to, it's going to start resetting the kind of mindset of buyers. They're going to negotiate more on their commissions, um, you know, because it's going to be more of a hard cost to them. They're going to feel the cost more. And I think that it is going to cut down commissions and then not in the next 12 months over the next 12 to 24, 36 months, we could see a shift in normalizing commissions to a little bit lower rate. And, you know, that's going to be less revenue that coming into these brokerages. That's less, you know, if the commissions are smaller, it's going to be harder to hit your caps. And I do think it is a shift in the market. I do believe that brokers do deserve every percent of 3% when they are rolling out big marketing plans and selling that property and they're showing every showings. But there's going to be a difference in like experience now. And I think it's going to be way more noticeable. Honestly, I think some brokers are overpaid and they're just working through the motions. They're going to have to step up and provide a good service to get paid well. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that get paid when you offer a good service. So I don't really have a whole lot of problems with it, which I'm probably one of the only brokers in the nation saying that. But I do think that this is just the beginning of a shift down. You know, it's going to start unwinding the normality of just, hey, this is what brokers get paid every time. And now you're really going to have to earn it. Spoken like a very confident person who uh, knows that his, he's, he's worth every penny of, of the commissions that he earns. <laughs> Kathy, I'm curious about your view on uh, just sort of the broader economic implications here, because we, we, you know, James made some great points, but until NAR makes its moves, the judge rules, we really don't know exactly the, the nuts and bolts of how things are going to change. But I'm curious, you know, housing is, quote unquote, in a recession. People keep saying that I, I know one industry can really be in a recession that kind of defies the, the definition. Uh, but I get what they mean, because housing sales volumes are down like 50 percent. And so the whole industry is hurting in terms of just revenue. I'm curious if you think this could make a bad situation even worse. It's a good question, and we will soon see. And it will take some time for this to all play out. What I've been looking at, and I am no attorney here, but it seems like this is really an attack on the National Association of Realtors and their mandatory compensation rule. And this means that it's just, you have to do it. And that's the attack. So there doesn't seem to be any ruling against the seller covering or paying out a buyer's agent. As long as the seller agrees to it, and as long as the agent agrees to it, I believe that's not under attack right now. But NAR's demand that it's required is. So I, what I'm seeing is like Redfin is now leaving uh, NAR, and NAR is going to be really hurt by this. So where does that leave the industry? Really, the main reason, I mean, there's lots of reasons that there's been a requirement for a lot of brokers to be uh, members of NAR was to get on the MLS. But there's a lot of states already that don't have to, you know, you can still get access to listings without going on the MLS. So my guess is that there'll be more and more brokerages that figure out the technology there and uh, have resources. Because that's that's what's always been confusing to me. As somebody, you know, Rich is a broker, my husband's a broker um, in California, but we don't do real estate in California. So we work with brokers nationwide. And it's been really hard for us to get on the MLS in those states, which is partly why we have those partners in, in other states to help our members buy property in other places. So it's it, to me, it's just outdated the system anyway that there's been so much difficulty even for a licensed agent to get access to listings. <laughs> you know, it's just weird. So I think that it's the attack on the MLS, attack on NAR. Um, sellers can still 
put the buyer's fee in in the commissions if they want to, which is wise in my opinion, very wise because then you can finance it. But if it's if the if it's not in there and the buyer has to hire an agent and pay their own fee, then they're that's they may not get a buyer's agent and they might find out the hard way that they really need that agent for so many reasons. So uh, and there's no nothing right now. There's no regulation that allows you to finance that cost, the buyer's agent fee, outside of it being from the seller. So they'd have to change mortgage guidelines too around that. So that was a mouthful. Um, so I don't, bottom line, in answer to your question, I don't think it will affect things very much. I think what's affecting real estate sales is the fact that uh, rates are so high and there's very little inventory out there. That's what's affecting brokers and real estate agents more than anything. I tend to agree. I, I think it's there is a lot of fear, obviously, and that's understandable. But I think you know this is uh, a needed service. Whether the the payment gets changed and it weeds out some some poor operators, we'll have to see. But I, I think um, honestly, I think the biggest financial impact of this is going to be on all those politicians. I don't know if anyone listening to this knows this, but NAR is the second biggest lobbying group in the entire country, mm-hmm. only second to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Last year, they contributed $82 million to uh, in, in lobbying, which was way more. The second highest in real estate was $6.8 million, so more than 12x <laughs> higher than the next group in real estate. And so... With them paying $1.8 billion in damages, I think uh, politicians are going to be a little hurt not getting their uh, campaign contributions that they usually get. Wow. Yeah, well. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll uh, step up their uh, lobbying so that they can try and get away from these fees, but it's kind of interesting. All right. For our second story, the headline is, largest real estate brokerages, commercial real estate brokerages, brace for another year of decline in deals. Basically, some of the big commercial brokerages like CBRE, Jones Lang LaSalle, Cushman Wakefields, there are a lot of their executives and their public posturing. These are public companies, so they have investor calls, um, have been pushing back on expectations of a quick recovery in the commercial real estate. And a lot of people, a lot of these executives are saying that they think that sales might actually stay down or decline even further in 2024. So, Henry, let's start with you. Do you what do you make of this? Do you think commercial real estate might rebound in 2024 or are we in for another tough year at least in terms of transaction volume? Oh, I think transaction volume in the commercial space is going to be down. But is like to me is this really a head, uh, is it really a headline because real estate's never been on a trajectory where we just expect sales volume to be high year over year. There's always been ups and downs in real estate. And these brokerages are aware of that. Sure. We would like to see a run like, like we've seen in the last, you know, I would say five years prior to this year where it does seem like volume goes up year over year, but that's not the norm. Um, and so I think a lot of them are probably prepared for this, but as far as transaction volume being down, yeah, I think it's going to continue to be down. I think commercial, especially if we're talking, uh, as far as office and, uh, small retail, I think it's going to, the transaction volume is going to be down. I think if you're talking commercial in terms of, uh, apartments, uh, large scale multifamily commercial real estate, we're definitely going to see some, um, some decline there. Now, I think that's more because we've got some loans coming due and banks not being able to keep those things financed going forward. Um, now I think there's an opportunity there for cash buyers to come in. 
um, and scoop up some of those properties at a discount. But if they're buying those properties at a discount, that means the commissions that those agents are making aren't going to be what they were used to making. In 2020, people were buying everything under the sun um, for large prices and the brokerage commissions were looking really good. So I don't think that that's don't think that that's going to be the case over the next year. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to, to see uh, how this all plays out. Some of the executives do seem to believe that we might see a pickup in the second half of the year. Kathy, what do you make of that? Um, next year? Yeah, in 2024, like a year from now or nine months from now. Well, uh, sales, boy, is it hard to predict these these days. Um, I guess they would pick up from where they're going to be. So in other words, I think in the next four to six months, sales are going to plummet even more and possibly pick up from there um, towards the end of next year. If value, there's, there's like three things that have to happen. There even there have to be more distressed sales. Prices have to come down or rates have to come down. So if if one of those three happens, then people will start to to dive in. But other otherwise, it just a lot of these deals just don't make sense. They don't pencil. Uh, costs have gone up so much across the board between insurance rates, obviously mortgages or, you know, debt service and, um, and, you know, uh, taxes. I mean, so many costs have gone up. You cannot, um, pay last year's or even this year's prices and, and make it make sense. So unless there's again, one of those three things that happen. And right now there's only 2% of commercial properties in distress. So it's not a huge issue yet. And will it be next year? Apparently there's another, there was like $728 billion that, um, you know, was coming due this year and about the same next year. Uh, we didn't see a huge distress this year. So will it happen next year? I don't know. It's, it's time will tell, but my guess is the one thing that we will see is rates coming down. So will rates come down enough that it will make sense for people to dive back in? If prices come down at the same time, yes. So there's my very long answer of, I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. But maybe. <laughs> maybe. James, what do you think? Do you think any of those three things will happen? Will we have some distress or rates come down and people, you know, could the market find a bottom next year? I mean, we're definitely seeing a little bit more inventory coming through on distress where it's, you know, banks are starting to try to get rid of things. Uh, you know, they have some problematic syndicators that have run out of funds. Um, I have seen a couple examples very recently where everybody that invests in the syndication is totally smoked Oof. and the banks are are willing to kind of negotiate with you directly as far as paying down their balance and then giving you a pretty good rate. Um, so I do think there's going to be an uptick in sales towards quarter three and four, because I think some of this distress is just starting to come to fruition and it takes six to eight months to kind of get through that product. Um so I think it will uptick a little bit. I don't think it's going to be like massive amounts. And I think sales will stay pretty flat because at the end of the day, it comes down to debt. And debt is extremely hard to get right now on large commercial, large multifamily. Even if you are getting a screaming deal, like there's a couple properties we're looking at recently where we're at least 50% lower per door cost than we were looking at two years ago. And we still have to put 50% down on that building. And the, the, the amount of down payments and cash required to buy these right now 
it just the math doesn't make sense return wise. And so that's the struggle. And so I think with, you know, when the debt's hard to get and you have to put that much cash down and liquidity is starting to burn up, the market's going to be slow for the next six to 12 months. But there will be some opportunities. We're seeing them. And so I think there's gonna be a small uptick, but it's not going to be this massive wave. All right. Well, sounds like uh, if no one's super optimistic about <laughs> commercial real estate <laughs> next year, no, I agree. Speaking of distressed commercial real estate, how about WeWork? <laughs> <laughs> so WeWork filed just this last week for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the second quarter of 2023. They lost a cool $397 million, which just imagine having that problem. Imagine having $400 million to lose. That would be a fantastic position <laughs> to be in, but wow. <laughs> Also, Kaylin, our producer, just informed us that this is a year-over-year -year improvement over 2022, <laughs> where they lost something like $600 million. So that is not very good. I also actually, I was reading a different headline in addition to this, that SoftBank, which is their venture capital firm that like has been floating them, I think it said they lost $16 billion on just this one investment, and it's going on record as one of the worst investments ever made. So again, talking about having some money to burn. Adam Newman, the WeWork CEO, has stepped down, and the future of this company is still very much in question. Henry, what do you make of this? Do you think, is it just WeWork is a bad company? It grew too fast. Do you think co-working has a future in the work-from-home era? Where do you see this going? Man, commercial office is just tough right now because of the limbo that people kind of find themselves in. Like if you, I, I saw a, uh, a TikTok recently where it was like, you know, the state of working from home. And it was like, when COVID started, it was like, we're all focused on your safety. So work from home as long as you need to, you know, and then, and then it was like, the CEO was like, Hey, well, you know, we want you to work from home, but we want you to, you know, we'll, we'll start to come back in the office a little bit. And then it was like, hey, we there's no working from home. This is not what we, you know, and it's. And yeah, was I, it it I, was I, that I, meme that was like, I can't believe you thought this was going to be forever. We never yes, said this yes, was going to be right. forever. Yes. You know, it's just like a complete 180. But that's kind of like as a former, you know, corporate person, like I felt that because I was like, that is kind of how the messaging is always around things like this. And I think that we're just kind of in this limbo space. There are very few companies who still fully embrace it and allow people to work from home. But I think a lot of companies are kind of in this. We're still feeling it out. Like, so there is some we're going to allow for some of it. But in certain situations, you know, we're going to require you to come in. And so I think that the co-working environment is kind of feeling some of that people in limbo because they don't know if they're going to be able to keep it up. And so some people are just saying, hey, we're going to go into the office and some people are still paying for co-working space. But there's much less people that are willing to pay for a small co-working space now than there was at the beginning of COVID. And I think that you're just starting to see the impacts of that. I don't and even like large companies running large office space, there's less of them that want to do that because they have found talent that they can hire that doesn't live there and it's working well for them. So I don't know, man, until this like this limbo period kind of clears itself up, I, I you know, just this co-working idea. I don't know that it's a solid business plan if that's your only revenue stream. 
because the office is it's just in limbo all the way around. It's a it's a tough it's a tough market to be in. It creates opportunity because you can buy this. I literally went and looked at an office building this morning that was listed for like one point five million. And the guy was telling me, look, man, I'd I'd let this thing go for a whole lot less than that right now. Um, <laughs> Great negotiating tactic. Just walk in the door and he drops the price without even saying anything. But it but it was the the way the office was laid out is it was broken out into a lot of little single offices. And that's what I would have had to do to get this thing to cash flow, which is rent out individual offices. And so although I think there are, there is probably some some market for that. It's not the majority of the market anymore. So I just, I I don't know that, that this, this strategy, this, this revenue stream is going to come back and definitely not in the volume that they were used to. Yeah. I mean, I have, I just have strong feelings about this because I used to work in a co-working space and it was actually great. And when I moved to Amsterdam, I thought about it and it was like, we work was like 800 euro a month. So almost 900 bucks a month to get a small office. And I was like, I could just rent, I rent in Amsterdam. So I was like, I could just rent a bigger house for 900 and get more bedrooms and just like work from home. Like, it's just a bad value proposition. But back then prior to COVID, like it was cool. And so people were willing to pay a premium to be in a cool space and they are really well designed, but the value is atrocious. And so I think like it's no longer cool. It's, you know, sort of like a joke among a lot of investors about WeWork. And so like no one's willing to pay that premium uh, to be in a space that honestly doesn't offer a tremendous amount of value. So I'm not optimistic about WeWork's future. James or Kathy, do you have any uh, thoughts about WeWork? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it was treated like a tech company, and it was never a tech company. It was always a real estate sort of hack, you know, where you're leasing space and re, you know, leasing it out. It's not a new concept, but it was created as if it was. So it garnered far too much attention and got far too much money, and they went out and got far too many expensive leases. And now it's really the office building owners who are going to pay the price for this. Because they're all over the country, all the big cities, they are not going to receive their uh, lease payments or their payments at all. I, I, I think that it's like a divorce with hundreds of people involved. It's going to be a nightmare as all of these property owners try to collect uh, through this bankruptcy process. So as a, a landlord, this was probably something to think about, like who's your tenant and what's the guarantee here? And And there really wasn't one. Uh, it's going to just further, it, it's, it's, you know, kick the horse while it's d- down. I, well, I don't know the saying, you know, um, you can't kick a dead horse in the mouth. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank that, you. That's it. No, that's not right. That's not even close. I was just giving you the benefit of the doubt. I, I think Henry nailed it. <laughs> I think that's just how they say it, you know, in Arkansas, maybe. Yeah, I don't that's know. Right. That's right. <laughs> but I, you know, I've made um, investments in real estate that I wish I hadn't, but I did not ever buy office. And I feel very, very proud of myself for that because this would be a hard time to be in an office. How did these guys not realize 12 months ago to throw in the towel? Like, we just lost $600 million. (laughs) Nobody wants to work from home. Let's double down on this and keep investing millions of dollars. Like, it makes no sense to me. I can't believe SoftBank keeps giving them money. VCs just love spending money on ideas. It's crazy. It's like, 
but why haven't they pivoted, yeah. right? Like the problem with WeWork is it's for the working professional and COVID has reset that that mindset of you can work from home and you can run a professional business off Zoom. You don't need that meeting room anymore. And that's been reset in the consumer space with uh, people that run small businesses. But why wouldn't you pivot to where people have to go? Like, why isn't WeWork turned into a giant studio for hairdressers where they can have people come up, <laughs> go to a private? Because you have to go to that that's brick true. and mortar. It would be cheaper than going to a salon at that point. It's like, or, you know, it just anything that needs to be done. It could be a Botox person. It could be a, a massage therapist. Like, where do you have to go that you want to subsidize your cost? But there's been no pivot. They're still just marketing to a dead pool. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, their CEO stepped down, so maybe you need to talk to I was, them. I was going to say, James is about to start <laughs> getting emails, and then you're going to see a headline, James Daynard hired as WeWork's new CEO. <laughs> Big industry pivot. I'll take a run if there's a good signing bonus. Well, Adam Newman pivoted. He left the company and just started a new, a whole, a whole new company called Flow. And despite him running this company into the ground, he's raised $350 million from venture capitalists wow. already. So... Clearly, people have a short memory. <laughs> it's unbelievable. All right. Well, we'll we'll keep that one. We were just venting about, but it's it's it'll be an interesting <laughs> story to watch to see if it can make some sort of miraculous recovery with James as the uh, as the CEO. The new CEO. <laughs> I think I'm going to be kicking some horses in the mouth or whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> Only dead horses, James. Only dead horses. Dead horses. Yeah. No animals were hurt in the filming of this podcast. This is just figurative. All right. For our last headline, it reads Housing market fact or fiction. 49% of Americans now believe it is a bad time to buy real estate, with 32% of Americans saying they believe they will never be able to afford their dream house. Wow. All right. So let's just start here. Kathy, what do you make of this pessimism for Americans about the housing market? Sadly, it's lack of education, and I'm doing everything I can to change that, as are you, as is everybody here. It is just simply people don't know what they don't know. You can you can buy a property with 3% down. You can uh, – now, Fannie Mae came out with – 5% down for multifamily people. This is huge news. Huge. This means that you can become instantly an investor. You could possibly live for free if you rent out the other units. And when I say multifamily, I mean one to four. It's still falls under Fannie Mae guidelines. This is big news. It used to be 20, 25% you had to put down to get multifamily through Fannie Mae. So just know that when rates are 8% or 7 or whatever they are, they will come down. Mark my words, someday. They will come down. <laughs> and and right now, with this many people thinking that, this is your opportunity. Because now, with, with properties sitting just a little bit longer than they were, because there is more fear, you can negotiate where you couldn't for many, many years, unless you're a Henry or a James. But not everybody has those skills. But right now, it won't take a lot of skills to negotiate a good deal and pay the interest rate if you, it's not going to be a huge difference for a median price home that you can refi later when, when there is a frenzy. When rates come down, you will have more competition. You will not be able to negotiate the price down as well as you can today. And, and you don't have to put a lot of money down. So 
Let's just keep educating people. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, Kathy, I think for a lot of people, they might want to. But what do you make of the people who just feel like this is out of just it's not that just bad that they just feel like it's completely out of touch. Henry, do you do you get that sentiment for people who are just seeing these prices skyrocket? Oh, I, I, I understand looking at the high prices and looking at the high interest rate and thinking there's no way I can do this. Um, but what most people do is all they do is look and make a determination of what they can't do without actually doing the research and figuring out what's truly possible. There's just, and Kathy is right. The, the education just isn't always right in front of people's faces. And so they don't know that yes, it seems unaffordable, but there are ways that it can be affordable for you. Now, is it going to be like buying a house at a 3% interest rate? No, it's not. But there are programs, there are down payment assistance programs. And in most states, there's a down payment assistance program. And now the qualifications for those programs are going to be different from state to state. But you've got to go do the research to figure out, is there a way that I can get in and afford the down payment? Is there a way that I can get in and negotiate a rate buy down? Now, if you couple this along with the NAR decision and now they got to go pay for pay for a realtor to <laughs> right, help them yeah. negotiate these things, it's yeah. going to be more difficult. But yes, you can buy your rate down, especially lots of new construction there. The, the builders are offering to buy people's rates down. Sellers who have homes sitting on the market right now are willing to do rate buy downs for buyers who are going to give them uh, who are going to make offers on their properties. But unless you have a very experienced agent or somebody, uh, a friend or family member who has some of this knowledge or expertise to kind of guide you along the way. People just have no idea that they can actually afford to buy a home, you know, house hacking, the multifamily thing that Kathy was talking about. Yes, that is a doable strategy for people, but it's also overwhelming and intimidating if you're thinking, well, I, I don't think I can afford a single family home. Why would I even go out there and look at a duplex or a triplex you know, the prices on that are more expensive. They also don't know that your 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 mortgage or your loan product will typically allow you to count the rents that that property is currently getting as income for you to help you qualify for that higher uh, purchase amount for those new properties. There's just a lot of education that people like us have because we, we are in this business and study it that the normal buyer doesn't. And so we've got to figure out some way to continue to educate people that this can be affordable. You just have to know what to go look for. You have to know how to apply for it, how to qualify for it, and uh, and how to position yourself so that you can take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. Because I believe this is an, a phenomenal time to be buying real estate. Like this is the time you want to buy real estate because the interest rates are high, which means exactly what Kathy said. You can negotiate more and better terms for yourself. You can get into a property at a lower price because you can negotiate that price down. And then at some point, I agree, the rates will come down. Is it a year? Is it two years? Is it five years? Who knows? But when they come down, you can always refinance and get a lower interest rate. So I'd rather buy at a lower price at a high interest rate than buy at a higher price at a lower interest rate because I can always re, uh, refinance my interest rate. So this is a great time to be buying. You just have to know how to go do it and what to look for. 
All right. Well said. And yeah, there are a lot of new programs too, can, in, in addition, where you can now include some of your rental property potential from an ADU in a mortgage, which is a new rule. Um, so that's another option. James, I'm curious though, you know, these types of surveys, investor, you know, sentiment is often a really good indicator in a lot of industries. You know, when you see expectations of inflation to go up, inflation usually falls up because people demand more wages, companies demand more prices, that kind of thing. Same thing with consumer sentiment. Do you think that this is, you know, bodes poorly for the amount of transaction volume or any new supply coming on the market next year? Because if people are not feeling it, you know, whether they're right or wrong about that, it's still reality. And so if people aren't feeling it, do you think that's going to carry into the 2024 housing market? Yeah, I mean, I think the 2024 housing market's going to be fairly flat for the next 12 months. And I think that is, I mean, we're seeing less loan apps being applied for. There's less buyers walking through properties, but things are selling. And so it's already here and we're in the middle of it where it's just kind of this slow grind. You know, I think part of it is people want housing. They have to buy the people that need housing are just buying what they can afford and they're okay with that. And I mean, going back to kind of what the statement is, is like, Americans feel they can't buy their dream home or never afford their dream home. Who says your dream home is supposed to be your first house? Like, <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Like it's short-term pain, <laughs> long-term gain. My first property was not my dream house. It was a grimy, crusty crondo that was disgusting. And it was what I could afford. And I bought it and I improved it. And then I traded it. And then I traded again. And it's like that mindset grinds my gear. It drives me nuts because I'm like, at what <laughs> point do you think you just get your dream house? This isn't Barbie world, like where you just get the house. Like you have to earn it, <laughs> right? It, like, and every time you do a real estate transaction, you're slowly starting to earn it, right? You, you, mm -hmm. It's all about getting into that first property, getting some growth, reinvesting the growth, and then getting to your next house. It's taken us five homes. Five times we've sold our primary homes to get to what I would call my dream house. And it's still not my dream house. Okay. It, and it's like, you know, because my dream house is on a lot of water on a lot of property with a big boat out front. But I can't buy that right now. And that's okay. <laughs> I can go try to earn it. It's like, hard, like, get to work. And part of that work is you take the first step and you buy the property. That's your first step. It doesn't have to be your dream home. It's about just getting in the game. And if you don't get in the game, you can't move forward. I heard the same stuff in 2008 when the market was crashing. Why would you ever buy real estate? It's going in the toilet. It, there's no money out there. It was the best time to buy it. You were getting all your closing costs paid for. Mm -hmm. it, the rates were lower. They had every reason to get into a house, but no one wanted to do it. So it's the same thing right now. It will be a phase. The mindset will change. But if you think you can't afford your home right now, I feel bad for you because it is hard. Trust me, I don't like my payment on my new house either. But it's getting us in the game. Find out what you can afford. And then it's short term. You're going to you're going to trade it out two years later. It's it drives me nuts. You don't get your dream house in like that or go work for WeWork and get a big signing bonus and then go get your dream house. <laughs> and, and this is not a new story, you guys, at all. I've been around a few decades and I can tell you in the 70s, people were complaining that prices were too high. In the 80s, they were. In the 90s, this is always a story. So it's you just have to understand that inflation is driving prices up. If you're not on the bandwagon of getting into the things that inflate, you're going to be left behind. My, my dad bought an incredibly expensive home 
uh, in the 70s that was a whopping $90,000. That was considered out of reach for people. So you guys, this is not a new story. You just have to get the education. And oh, also, you have to have good credit. You have to save money. These are the things that are required generally in buying a house. You, you don't just get one. All right. Well, I have, a, I have a lot of things to follow up on here. First and foremost, <laughs> what is the price tag of James Dannard's dream house? Because I, I, don't even, I don't even know if I've seen a number that high in my life. So James, keep working, man. You're going to, you're going to get there one day. <laughs> Second thing, Kathy, I haven't been to your house, but it sounds like you are living in your dream house. Is that right? I am, except in November. <laughs> well, why? Did, did it rain one day this month? <laughs> <laughs> we will we will gladly accept the rain. We need the rain. It's the wind. We get the Santa Anas, and you just literally can't go outside. It is so oh my windy. Gosh. I thought I was going to crash last night in the plane. Oh, gosh. Because of the wind? Oh, my gosh. I thought I was, I was done for. It's insane. So November's the windy season. It kind of goes through February, but this is the worst. This is also the fire season. Uh, so, yeah, I love it here, except November. Henry, do you live in your dream house? I do live in my dream house, but I am. Oh, uh, Kathy, I don't want to hear you say nothing about nothing about nothing. <laughs> if you got to stay inside of a house, uh, that's the house I want to stay inside of <laughs> for two days while it's windy outside. Uh, Dude, I'm sitting here in Amsterdam. It's literally made 17 days in a row. I haven't seen the sun since September. Kathy lives in Barbie's Malibu dream house. So I don't want to. <laughs> uh, yes, I do live in my dream house. I am not telling you this from my fancy boat either. Like, I have a picture that made James's boat is probably in this picture somewhere. Like that's how fancy as I get. Uh, um, no, but I do live in my dream house. And just like, and just like James, I, it, it took me, I traded five times to get here. And that's the best way to get to the house that you want to have. Like if, if I would have just depended on like getting a raise or a promotion at my job and then buying a more expensive house, it'd take forever. Mm -hmm. But because you're buying and trading and real estate values tend to go up, you're able to kind of move a little quicker. Yeah. I also, I also think like the idea of a dream home just is kind of like crazy. Like it is crazy. Your idea of what you want is probably going to change. And I grew up in a situation where my parents had a nice house, but they were like stretching to afford that. And like, I've never wanted to yeah. be in that situation where you're, you know, they call it like quote unquote house poor. So like, don't want to like keep yeah. increasing my housing expenses proportionally to your income. So I just think this like idea that like there's this dream house out there and you need that's like some destination you necessarily need to arrive at is probably a product of that $82 million of NAR lobbying and marketing budget that they're putting out there. <laughs> All right, enough with my tirade. Let's get out of here. Thank you guys so much for joining us, James, Henry, and Kathy. Kathy, again, congratulations on your new grandbaby. Thank you all. Oh, Henry, your oh, daughter's here too. Oh, say hi. Hello. We're making. We have an on the market hey, wait, debut right now. Oh, both of them. Yeah. Say hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. We're going to take it out of here with Henry's daughter just being adorable and saying goodbye to all of us. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye bye. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. The show is produced by Kaylin Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content. And we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible.
Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.